So Nancy, I'm just going to give you a heads up that I've got one slide buried in there for the sermon, and, it's, and uh, I'll tell you when we need it. But uh, let's open up our Bibles first to the book of Ephesians, and we're just going to read that one verse from verse 13 of chapter 1, one sentence really. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard, or perhaps more accurately, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then, I'm not sure, but I think that might be a typo in the, uh, in the bulletin. I don't think I'm supposed to be reading out of Acts chapter 8. I think it's supposed to be Romans chapter 8. Verses 4 through 25. Yes, let's just read that. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm at 8 1, sorry. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. Come. And interpret, O oh Lord, your book. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I have to say that this um, particular issue, this issue of the sealing of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I take those as two synonymous terms, uh, has been a, a wonderful time for me personally. Um, I don't think I've ever enjoyed sermon preparation more, actually, in 27 years of pastoral ministry. And it's been feeding and it's been delighting my own soul and it's even been changing me. The other night, uh, my daughter left her golf clubs. Ladies, I just want you to be aware of something here. There's something about female psychology that picks the narrowest point in any house and says, we need to put something big there to make it narrower, right? You just do, and, and, and all of you do it, and I don't know why, but anyway. And, and my daughter set her golf clubs down in the narrowest place in the entryway. And I went to check in the dark if the door was locked, and I, and I stubbed my toe on the little upright that was holding the clubs up, and I went, ow. And then I thought for a minute, and my wife was in bed, and I, I ran back in there. I said, honey. I stubbed my toe on Evelyn's golf clubs and I said, ow. And she's like, what's wrong with you? What's come over you? Because normally I'd say something a little different than ow. And, um, and I just feel like God is like, you know, changing me. It's, it's, you know, it's not perfect and I'm certainly still wrestling with my sin, but just, the, just diving into this, just loving this, just begging God for it, so that I'm not just lecturing you about some abstract thing that none of us has ever experienced, but so that we can enter into the fullness of it together. It's been good. And, and I'm mindful that this issue is an issue in which there's been um, some disagreement and even controversy within the evangelical church. And, you know, I want to take those, because many of those people that are disagreeing with me are people that I revere and uh, whose teaching I benefited from in many other areas. And so it, the best part of this actually has been to test the arguments of those who disagree with me and to really engage with those arguments in a spirit of open-minded charity towards hearing their ideas. You know, the idea that I, I could be wrong. Right? I don't think I am. I, I certainly wouldn't stand up here and preach something that I hadn't thought about for a long time, but I could still be wrong. I'm a fallible human being. And, and the interesting thing is that I find when I do so, my own convictions on, the, on this issue are strengthened rather than weakened. And by the way, that's a, a practice that I recommend highly, just in general. The, the goal, your goal in the Christian life, should not be to reflexively and angrily defend stuff that you think is correct against Christians who hold a view that disagrees with yours. Your goal as a Christian is to pursue and know the truth as it is in Jesus. And um, I, I get kind of weary sometimes of people who basically come in and sit down and expect me to only tell them things they already think are true, and then maybe to even pitch a fit if you tell them something different. Um, and I want to say to them, can you not believe that you could possibly be mistaken on something? And how would you ever find out that you are mistaken on something unless you listen carefully and charitably to someone who disagrees with you and brings the scriptures to you to show why he disagrees with you. And some are so insecure about their views that they feel that they need to grow angry and stomp off 
when their views are disagreed with. And, you know, honestly, we make fun of college students when they do that. We call them snowflakes. You know why most people, Christian or secular, get angry when an idea is challenged? Most often, it's because they base their identity and their whole sense of self on that idea. And if it turns out to be wrong, then their life is in shambles, their pride is destroyed, they don't know who they are, and so they fight it tooth and nail. I've done it too. But surely, you see that that means, if that happens to you, that you're building your house on the sand. If you do that, you're not building your life on Jesus, but rather on certain ideas about Jesus that may actually not turn out to be correct. I'm going to challenge some of you a little bit later on in this sermon with some ideas that, uh, that you may not like. Just take it in a spirit that it's intended. Because if you build your life on seeking the truth as it is in Jesus, then you are free to test your ideas to see if they stand up to Scripture. And you'll always be gentle and you'll always be ready to revise if more accurate information comes along that better covers the facts. Because your highest goal is not to defend your turf, but to seek the truth as it is in Jesus. I always find it comical. I've I've had several times where I've debated with atheists, and and I will say something about the existence of hell, which by definition they don't believe in, and they're all offended, and they get very angry, and they start talking about, sometimes, I even had one guy start talking about hate speech, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm just standing here arguing that a being that you don't believe in will send you to an eternity that you don't believe in when you die. Why are you getting so upset? I'm not trying to do anything to you in this world or deprive you of anything. You have freedom of, why are you getting so upset? Well, it's because deep down, they're afraid they're not right. That when they take their last breath and step from this world into the next one, something unpleasant will be waiting for them. But rather than revise it, they just want to get mad at the messenger. No, no, don't be like that. So, Anyway, I've been reading the ideas of those who disagree with me on on this issue of the baptism of the Spirit, and and in particular, I'm interacting with, I I mentioned two ditches last week, one on the right and one on the left. I'm interacting with the people in my old ditch, the ones who say, no, the sealing of the Spirit is not a separate experience. The baptism of the Spirit is not a separate experience. It comes after conversion. You get it all at conversion, and it's a great mistake to seek something after that. Leaves you open to all kinds of nonsense and craziness. Okay, so let's, let's test that hypothesis. Let's examine that against the scriptures. And uh, if you happen to hold that view, um, that's okay. The world isn't going to end if you're wrong, and it's not going to end if I'm wrong. And it's not even going to end if both of us turn out to be wrong somehow. Jesus will still be Lord, and the scriptures will still be true, and heaven will still be forever. But at any rate, and Nancy, I'm going to ask you to flip on that slide there. It's um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. At any rate, those who, are, who assert that we are baptized in the Spirit when we believe savingly on the Lord Jesus will often cite 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And uh, I'm going to ask you if you've got a Bible to open it to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And let's just look at that together. Now, I'm reading in the English Standard Version, the ESV. And I, th- I think that that's accurate, uh, actually important. 
So 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Let's actually just read verse 12 and 13 together. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were made to drink of one spirit. So, so you look at that and you say, we're all, all baptized by the spirit or in the spirit into one body. And when does that happen? When do you get incorporated into the body of Christ mystically? invisibly, spiritually. Well, it's when you believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those people who take the position contrary to mine would say, there you go. It's something we all get when we're engrafted into Christ. We get the baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit baptizes us into Christ, which is something that happens at salvation. That's our union with Christ. And so we shouldn't seek the baptism of the Spirit as a later thing. And I thought to myself, upon reading that verse in the English Standard Version, huh, that is a pretty good argument. I can see why they take that position. But I never want to leave things in the English because I don't have to. And I did some more research, including digging into the Greek, and I discovered that the in there, in, in the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, is perhaps not the best way to translate that little preposition. Not only that, I'm not alone in that assessment. Almost all the other versions translate it as by. As a matter of fact, most of the modern versions preserve the King James translation and they read by one spirit. That's the New King James, the New American Standard, the NIV, the Contemporary English Version, the Christian Standard Bible, all of them, except this one, say by one spirit. You say to yourself, well, why does that make a difference? And I didn't, I didn't see why it should make that big a difference at first either. But the more I thought about it, the more I studied it, the more I saw that it makes a tremendous difference whether we're baptized by the Spirit into Christ or baptized in the Spirit into Christ. And, and I, as I said, I've got a slide of the New King James, and uh, I'll just read it to you. You can read it for yourself. For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one spirit. So all of us have been baptized by. Now, if by one spirit, rather than in, is the correct way of translating, and I think it is, let's do some simple logic here. In this verse, who is doing the baptizing? The Spirit is, right, okay? And what is the fluid that we are being baptized in or with, spiritually speaking? Well, this verse doesn't say, but other verses tell us that it is the blood of Jesus that brings us into as a matter of fact, that's what physical baptism speaks to, right? The waters of baptism are the cleansing of the, the body, a figure of the cleansing of the body. It's what, what can wash away my sin? Oh, that was horrible. The, what can wash away my sin? 
There you go. So when you, when you were baptized, what you were doing is physically showing an inward spiritual reality where your heart, says the book of Hebrews, is sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Okay, so the Spirit's baptizing in the blood of Jesus, and what is the effect of that baptism? Well, we're engrafted into the body of Christ. So the Spirit baptizes us with the blood of Jesus into the body of Christ. He incorpor- that's our union with Christ when we're saved. We're united to him. Okay? We're engrafted to him. Now, let's turn to Luke chapter 3. And I want to show you something really interesting. You won't have to sing for this one. Although you could. It sounded pretty. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Luke 3, 15 through 17, this is John the Baptist, he's he's doing his thing, telling him to repent and flee from the wrath that is to come and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 15 of Luke chapter 3, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now that verse is a prediction, says Jesus in Acts chapter one, of what happened at Pentecost. So look at that verse there, verse 17, or verse 16. When, the whole, when, when, when Jesus is doing his thing, Who's doing the baptizing? Jesus. The Lord Jesus. I baptize you with water. One who is coming, Jesus, will baptize you. He will baptize you. What's the fluid in which we are being baptized? The Holy Spirit and fire, right? And what is the effect, according to Jesus in Acts chapter 1, of being baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire, or in the Holy Spirit and with fire? What's the effect? Power. You will receive power from on high when you are clothed with the Spirit. So, so in, in 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit is baptizing us with the blood of Jesus into Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus is baptizing us with the Holy Spirit to a position of power. Two different people, two different fluids, two different effects. These are totally separate things. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about one thing, our salvation, and Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and 2 talks about our empowerment having been saved. And I thought about that. I thought, man, those are two totally different things. Those are two totally separate acts of God for two totally different effects. And I thought to myself, that is actually rather strong evidence for the view that I'm teaching. And all of a sudden, we're using the verse of our opponents here that they relied upon as evidence for their case, and we find that it actually undermines their case. And it just makes so much sense to me that we're pursuing the right path here together. Enough on that point. 
Last week I told you we were going to look at what happens when the Holy Spirit comes to baptize you or seal you. And I told you that it would affect you at two different levels. At the level of your thinking, but also at the closely related level of your desiring. Or to use scriptural language, it would affect your heart, the seat of your desires, and your mind, the seat of your thinking. Now, when a person is dead in trespasses and sins, they are possessed by what the scripture calls a depraved mind, a mind that cannot see God's truth as a good and pleasant and necessary thing. They, they, just, they have a depraved mind, it says. It doesn't want God, doesn't see the need for God, thinks that coming to God would ruin its life and its right from a certain perspective. And you're also alienated from God in your affections when you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You don't want Christ. You don't want that which is true. You don't want the good. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you can. Uh, if you don't, I'll just read it to you. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 17 through 24, Paul talks about the spiritual state of a person who's apart from God, who's not saved. And he says this, now I say, Ephesians 4, 17, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. In other words, the ignorance isn't something that's inflicted on them, it's something they inflict on themselves by having hard hearts and sticking their fingers in their ear and going, da, 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 I can't hear God, I'm not listening. By their hardness of heart, they have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So if you're lost, if you're sitting here this morning unconverted, not born again, Paul's talking about you in that verse. Your mind isn't working like it should. You're not seeing the things you should see. Your heart is not desiring what it should. You're desiring things which are killing you. And they will kill you. You need to be born again. You don't need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, yet you need to be born again. What's happening behind the scenes though when you come to saving faith in Christ is that the Holy Spirit comes and he implants a new heart in you in seed form. And you are given a new mind in seed form. And the seeds of all graces, says the Westminster Larger Catechism in question 75, are implanted into you and they begin to grow. But the old nature is still there. It's weakened, but it's still there. And that old nature begins to weaken as the seeds begin to grow. And these, these things are two diametrically opposed principles within you, especially at the level of desiring and thinking. 
and they're at war with one another. And you tend to obey the one that is loudest and strongest within you. As a consequence, you have a divided heart that needs to be stitched together. You have a double mind. You need to have a single mind. Sometimes Jesus talks about the double eye. You're seeing two different things at once. You're trying to, trying to look at two different things as attractive that are diametrically opposite. And you are, on account of all of that that's going on inside of you, you're unstable. You're erratic. You're pulled this way and that. One moment, God and his ways seem sweet and attractive and obviously good. The next moment, you're raging at the driver in front of you in traffic. One minute, you are at rest in your soul. The next, you are an inferno of lust. One minute, your mind is clear on what God wants you to do with your money. The next minute, you're ready to take out a second mortgage on your home to buy a new fishing boat. And the Bible talks about this division within you in several different ways. It talks about the old man and the new man. It also talks about the flesh and the spirit. And we get this in Galatians in chapter 5, don't we? Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. But I say, says Paul, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. I love the way the old King James translates that. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusteth against the flesh. Well, what's going to what has to happen inside of you if you are going to become holy? If you're going to become one who can obey Jesus in a consistent way most of the time? Well, you've got to strangle the old man and you've got to strengthen the new, don't you? The, the, the old theologians talk about mortification. Mort means death. You're strangling the old man. And vivification, vive, means life. You're enlivening the new. The flesh must weaken, and the spirit must strengthen. Now, the normal way of doing that is the lifelong journey of sanctification, and it's slow, and it requires you to co-labor with God in your life patiently and diligently, and the spirit of God will help you. So what's the relationship then between the normal lifelong process of sanctification and the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, have you ever planted seeds in your garden and watched and waited, and it seems as if nothing is happening. And then the first shoots of green finally break the surface of the soil, and you water it with the hose, and there's some growth, but it's slow. And then you get a series of days, like we've had in the last couple of weeks, where you get these gentle soaking rains alternating with days of warm sunshine. And what happens to those plants? They just, poof, they just shoot up. You can almost see them growing. That's, that's one of the things, actually, that I love about living here now. Because in South Dakota, nothing grows, nothing's going to grow. And if it does grow, God's going to try and kill it with hail and, and plagues of grasshoppers and drought and everything else. I mean, it's just hard. I, I remember my first year I moved there, I, I said, okay, I'm, this dirt is horrible. I'm just going to plant um, a, a tomato in a pot. I love fresh tomatoes. And I, so I planted a tomato in a pot and it almost died four or five times because 
South Dakota was being South Dakota, and I get all the way to September, and I finally get a tomato. And when I take it off the vine and bring it in and cut it, it tastes just like a Walmart tomato in February. I was like, that was a complete waste of time. But I come here, and all of a sudden, I've got tomato plants that are like five feet tall. I'm like, this is great. I love this place for that. And there's something about that rainwater. It's just better than that hose water. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like that rain and that sunshine. It nourishes us. And the sovereign spirit gives us these great nourishing infusions in a short amount of time, and it causes us to grow, and it causes us to change noticeably. It causes the new man to strengthen and the old man to weaken. And we begin to, as Paul says in Galatians, walk by the spirit. Walk by the spirit. Very well then, what exactly is it that happens to us? What does he do then when he seals us? That's the effect, but what's actually happening? Well, first of all, I want to say that there are great varieties of experience because he's a sovereign spirit and he gives his gifts in the amount he wants to give to who he wants to give when he wants to give them. So there's a lot of variety here, but there do seem to be some commonalities, specifically uh, delineated for us in the scripture. In particular, there seems to be something that he does in our inward being. Now, there are are two, two issues that we need to talk about. First is what happens inside of us, and the second is what that external uh, what, what his external ministry might look at. And everybody's focused on the external stuff because it's like, you know, in, the, in the, the book of Acts, it's like tongues and prophecy and miracles and things like that. And everybody's like, ooh, I want that. that. That's not the most important part, actually. Okay? The most important part is what he does in our inward being. And in particular, the Spirit floods our inward being and produces in us a deep experience of God's adopting, electing, and preserving love. And this notion of experience is incredibly important because the will is not transformed by information. The will is transformed by experience. Before we are sealed, we may be in possession of much information and that information is true, and that information is good, and that information is necessary information, it's often very helpful. But in the baptism or the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that information becomes something you can taste. You know it by direct experience. In the same way that a woman who has had a baby knows something about childbirth that a male obstetrician who has delivered thousands of babies will never know. She has tasted the joys and the agonies of childbirth. And she knows by experience what he can only know in his head and by interaction with those who are having the experience. When the Spirit comes upon us in power like this, Paul describes in particular two effects that we come to know by experience. And he, and he describes the first one in Romans chapter 8, which we, which we read this morning. And in verses 12 through 17 of Romans chapter 8, he says, We're debtors 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That's direct interaction with the Holy Spirit. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, we live in a time in church history where this issue of assurance of salvation is not rightly dealt with at all. People basically have a superficial view of their own sinfulness. They have a superficial view of the depth of their sinfulness and the destruction of their sinfulness. And as a consequence, they also have a superficial view of assurance. If I'm a pretty decent person who doesn't need too much to save me, and if God is basically a nice God who's happy to provide that little boost I need because he's a nice God, then I don't need to worry very much about having salvation and being assured of that salvation. I really don't need to produce any fruit or give any evidence of my salvation, do I? No, no, I can just say, I accepted Jesus into my heart. Now I'm all better. Well, are you? I mean, it's not like God is judgmental or anything, is it? It's not as though the Bible says in Psalm chapter 7 and verse 11, God is a righteous judge who is angry with the wicked every day. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It's not as though he says, the soul that sins will die in Exodus 18.20, is it? Sometimes when people ask their pastor or their spiritual leader how to know if they're saved, they're told, well, you prayed the sinner's prayer and asked Jesus into your heart, right? So you're in. And that's a very bad answer. Mumbling a prayer will not save you. That answer is like the Catholic answer. How do you know you're saved? What says the, you ask the Catholic priest, and he'd say, well, were you baptized? God saved you in baptism. No. You are saved by recognizing your need, by coming to Christ repentantly, by placing all of your confidence in him for everything that has to do with your life, including the forgiveness of your sins and your eternal destiny, and then you spend the rest of your life following him and learning how to do all that he commanded. But since Jesus tells us that many who claim to be his disciples are not and never were, and they're going to hell, and they're gonna be quite surprised when they find out about it, how can you make sure that you're not one of those? I mean, I did hospice. It's a real question you ought to be asking. Here's people that are facing the end of their days. Are you concerned about your soul? No, nah, I'm fine. Okay. Well, and I can't say very much beyond that because it's hospice and you've got to let the patient lead. But, but the question I was always trying to hope that they would ask was, I'm not sure. I've done some terrible things in my life. I'm not sure I'm saved. Tell me, chaplain, 
How do I get saved? How do I know that I'm saved? If you were facing, if you went to the doctor tomorrow and you found out you're going to be dead in a month, hopefully you'd go, all right, I need to make sure that when I breathe my last, I'm going to the good place and not the bad place. And if you ask me how to know, I will not say, well, did you pray the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart? No. The gospel is that God saves sinners on condition of repentance and faith. And you've got to know, first of all, why you need to repent and come to Jesus. And you've got to know that at a deep level. And there are several non-supernatural ways that you can know that, that you can make your calling and election sure, but you have to observe yourself over a long period of time to collect the evidence. And there's a variety of evidence to be collected. It's things like, are you conscious of a time when you intentionally trusted Christ for your life and salvation, when you surrendered to him as Lord and said, I am yours? That's the difference between the sinner's prayer and real salvation. That can happen in the sinner's prayer by the grace of God. But so many people come and they go, I need a product from God called salvation. And this is the price I have to pay for it. And God says, I never agreed to that price and I never agreed to give you that product on those conditions. Come and bow. Humble yourself. Confess your wicked ways. Turn and receive Jesus. That's what it is to be saved. Have you, has there ever been a time where you trusted God for your life and your salvation, where you surrendered to him? Well, then after that event, what happened after that? Did you find that your appetite started to change? If so, how? Did your speech change? Did you find yourself no longer satisfied with certain sinful things that previously you just couldn't do without? Do you pray? And if so, do you see answers to your prayers? Have the scriptures ever come to life for you? Do you at least sometimes delight in God's will and in his law? Are you content to receive and embrace all of God's decrees in your life about whether a thing is wrong or right or good or bad? Or do you try and disagree with God? That sort of thing can happen. You, you watch yourself carefully over a period of time, a period of months, maybe even years, and finally you can come by natural means to a position of assurance. But it's slow. It's cautious work. And we deceive ourselves readily. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon us in power, we have this strange experience, and all of a sudden he's there in an unmistakable and joyous way and he's testifying directly to our hearts that God the Father has overlooked our sin, has given it to Jesus to be punished for it, and we are his. Now, once again, if you've 
bought this view that everyone is a child of God, which is a nonsense view, then you won't understand this experience because you won't see the need for adoption, the spirit of adoption. You think, I'm, I don't need to be adopted. I'm already a child of God. I was born a child of God. No, you weren't. The natural state of fallen man is that we are children of the devil. We are children of wrath, says Paul in Ephesians 2.3. And when God saves us, he adopts us. And he makes us his children. And in the sealing of the Spirit, we are given a direct, life-changingly vivid assurance that we are and always will be God's own special child. And the Spirit speaks to our spirits. And he says, rest. Rest assured all of your days that God the Father has set his electing love on you and has adopted you and has made you his own child. All that the Father can give you, he will. You never need to be anxious. You never need to be afraid. He is always with you and he will always care for you. And after that happens, all of your anxieties and your fears will cease. And even when hard things come, even when you don't understand why God let the hard things come, deeper down you are at peace. Even when sorrow and loss are your lot in life, still you have peace, unshakable peace. Because you know at the deepest level of your being that your Father is right there and He's caring for you. And you are able to reckon your sufferings then as momentary light afflictions that are working in you an unspeakable weight of glory. But perhaps the greatest inward experience that you can have the one that truly transforms you from the inside out, is described by Paul in Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, in verse 5, let's read, actually let's just read 1 through 5. We'll cap it off with 5. Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now in the Bible, hope is not, I might get that, I might not, I hope I do. In the Bible, hope is like, it hasn't happened yet, but it will. And I'm just waiting for it. So we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That word poured out refers to the gushing forth of a massive amount of liquid. It's, it's often used of the shedding of blood in other places where the, the blood just gushes forth on the ground and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was possible for that much blood to come out of somebody. 
And the Spirit of God causes the love of God, the love that God has for you to gush forth. Pours it into you. Now, once again, our common theology paralyzes us when we come to these verses because we've been conditioned by basically illiterate participation trophy-inspired Sunday school material to believe that God loves everybody equally in exactly the same way. No, he does not. The Bible is clear. Now, God does, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture, God does have a kind of benevolence towards all people. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. But that's not the kind of love we're talking about. Theologians refer to that kind of love as the love of philanthropy. It's a general love or care for human beings. But, but, that's, but beyond that is something else. And, and if you've got your Bible, I, want you to, I actually want you to do this. Open your Bible to Psalm 11. I want you to look at the words on the page and decide what you're going to do with them. Psalm chapter 11 and verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Hates. Wicked. Turn to Psalm 5 and verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. Boasting shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. That's just what the Bible says. That God has, it's not the hatred of a temper fit, it's his judicial wrath in action for the wicked. Now, you and I, we're the wicked. And God rescued us. We should have been the objects of his hatred. And he rescues us. Because of your wickedness, you were by nature loathsome to him, hateful to him. Yet he set his love upon you and he saved you. And in the sealing of the Spirit, he pours his love directly into your being like a liquid that you can taste, like a fluid that you can bathe in, like an ocean that you can swim in. All of our deepest wounds, all of our deepest pains, the things that cripple us in our innermost parts and make our lives a painful hellscape, almost all come about as a result of a particular lack of love in our lives that we experience as rejection. Now, rejection for what we do is painful enough, even if it's sometimes warranted, but rejection for what we are, that just cripples us. And rejection for what we are by someone who God has commanded to be one who loves us and who imparts life to us, that's devastating. When a parent or a spouse rejects us instead of receiving us, instead of cherishing us, instead of enveloping us in love and safety, we can become so profoundly damaged that life becomes impossible to manage. 
Infants who are not received will often die for no discernible reason. It's called failure to thrive. Almost all of the mental illness that we have with us that does not arise out of an imbalance in brain chemistry arises out of rejection. Not all of it, but some of it, most of it. And it's a result of rejection. This is why racism is so toxic and so soul-destroying and society-destroying. Because rejection kills. Dallas Willard says in his book, Renovation of the Heart, we only live as we should when we are in right relation to God and other human beings. Thus, the two greatest commandments is quoted at the head of this chapter. Accordingly, the infant who is not received in love by the mother and others is wounded for life and may even die. It must bond with its mother or someone to take on a self and a life. And rejection, no matter how old one is, is a sword thrust to the soul that has literally killed many. Western culture is largely unbeknown to itself a culture of rejection. And this is one of the irresistible effects of what is called modernity. And it deeply affects the concrete forms that Christian institutions takes in our time. It seeps into our souls and is the deadly enemy of spiritual formation in Christ. To be rejected by one who should love you. Or even worse, to be rejected and be told that is love destroys the soul. But when you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the love of God gushes into your heart. It is so powerful that it simply washes all that other rejection away. And it heals you. Old wounds that have run your life and have ruined your life simply disappear. The facts on the ground don't change. Your mom and dad still treated you the way your mom and dad treated you? Your spouse still did to you the things that he or she did to you? Your boss, your coworkers, your best friend, whoever it was? But those facts become irrelevant. You don't need to be angry anymore. You don't need to be defensive anymore. You will know at your deepest level that whatever crucial and necessary thing that you need that mom and dad or wife and husband or friend should have supplied to you by rights and didn't, and you keenly felt the cost of it every moment of every day, has suddenly been supplied, abundantly. And this, of course, then produces a great and lasting peace, because you are finally secure in the world. And it produces a great and lasting joy because you are lavishly provided for in the kingdom. And it produces then a great desire to live for this God who loved you so much and so well. You see, it's easy to serve someone you're nuts about, who you just love. And God loves you and out of that, you go, if I'm loved that much, I, I can't help but respond to love him back. And then whatever he wants me to do, well, of course I'll do. And to know that he's got my back and he's going to provide me with whatever I need to do what he's asking me to do. Well, it doesn't get any better than that. And you will also 
see a desire to see other people come to experience him as well. You'll be like, hey, this God, this God who you're on the wrong side of, come to Jesus and get on the right side of him. And he will shed his love abroad in your heart too. Puritan Thomas Goodwin, writing in the late 1600s, said that the only experience which is greater than the sealing of the Spirit is the experience of heaven itself. It is, he said, the highest, the most joyful experience that you can have in this world. And the only thing that's better is leaving this world and going to see Jesus. Some of you will perhaps know the name uh, Dwight L. Moody. Uh, he was a, a 19th century evangelist, massively used by God. If you're familiar with the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, that was named after him, and he, in one sense or another, founded it. What's interesting is that Moody had the sealing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit after he'd begun in ministry. He's saved, but he wasn't empowered. Listen to the story. This is from a, from a guy named R.A. Torrey who, wrote, who knew Moody and wrote about him. The seventh thing that was the secret of why God used D.L. Moody was that he had a very definite endowment of power from on high, a clear and definite baptism with the Holy Ghost. Mr. Moody knew that he had had the baptism with the Holy Ghost. He had no doubt about it. In his early days, he was a great hustler. He had a tremendous desire to do something, but he had no real power. He worked very largely in the energy of the flesh. But there were two humble free Methodist women who used to come to his meetings at the YMCA. One was Auntie Cook and the other was Mrs. Snow. And these two women would come to Moody at the close of his meetings and say, we are praying for you. Finally, Mr. Moody became somewhat nettled and said to them one night, why are you praying for me? Why don't you pray for the unsaved? And they replied, we are praying that you may get the power. Mr. Moody did not know what that meant, but he got to thinking about it. And then he went to these women and said, I wish you would tell me what you mean. And they both told him about the definite baptism with the Holy Ghost. Then he asked that he might pray with them and not merely that they would pray for him. Auntie Cook once told me of the intense fervor with which Mr. Moody prayed on that occasion. She told me in words that I scarcely dare repeat, although I've never forgotten them. He had not only prayed with them, but he had also prayed alone. Not long after that, one day on his way to England, he was walking up Wall Street in New York. Mr. Moody very seldom told this story, and I almost hesitate to tell it myself. And in the midst of the bustle and hurry of that city, his prayer was suddenly answered. The power of God fell on him as he walked up the street, and he had to hurry off to the house of a friend and ask that he might have a room by himself and in that room, he stayed alone for hours. And the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand lest he die on the spot from the very joy. He went out of that place with the power of the Holy Ghost upon him. And when he got to London, partly through the prayers of a bedridden saint in Mr. Leslie's church, the power of God wrought through him mightily in North London, and hundreds were added to the churches. And that was what led to his being invited over to the wonderful campaign that followed in later years. Moody and Ira Sankey held a revival in Edinburgh 
in the 1880s, I believe it was, that saved tens of thousands. And Moody traced it all back to this experience. Before this, I was energetic, but not very effective, he said. After this, I never knew another moment's doubt. I was always filled with joy. And God used me. Friends, do you want that to happen to you? It can, if you ask for it. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the scriptures which testify to your truth. And we ask that you would fill us with the Holy Ghost. We pray that you would baptize us and seal us in the Holy Spirit and give us measures of joy to know that we have been adopted into your family and are secure in this world and that all of the things that belong to Christ are ours and to know the great love which is shed abroad, gushing forth in our hearts and to cry out from all of that, Abba, Father, come Holy Spirit.